Good morning. It's good to be together again with you this morning to talk about this wide and wild topic of peace. We're in a series called Seek the Peace of the City, and if you were with us last week, you know that we tackled this big word, shalom. We tried to figure out what exactly does that mean. And we talked about how it doesn't mean lack of conflict, but rather it means the wholeness, the welfare, the goodness of our lives. It's us being all that God made us to be. And then we talked about seeking that shalom for our communities, for our schools, for our neighborhoods, our workplaces, that our shalom, that our peace should be extended and we should seek it for others, that our welfare is connected with their welfare, and that we should dive in and be prepared for the long haul because peacemaking is not a temporary or short-term endeavor. But I have an inkling of what some of you might have been thinking. I pride myself in reading minds. And I know that some of you, maybe if it wasn't an entire thought that maybe it was just a flash in your mind or something that kind of raced through your mind last week or, or during the week when you were thinking about what we discussed. When I was talking about seeking the peace of the city and diving in for the long haul and working hard for the peace of your community, I am sure that some of you had a thought that even I had as I was working on sharing last week, and that is, how can I seek peace with others? How can I bring peace to the world when my own life seems to experience such a small amount of peace? If my life is sort of out of whack, if I'm lacking peace myself, how can I bring peace to others? Or maybe you feel like, well, I'm in a pretty good place of peace, but it takes every ounce of my capacity to keep me there. And I feel like if I start sort of offering out peace to others, then I start losing it myself. It seems like such an overwhelming task. For many of us during this season, when we hear the phrase, peace on earth, we say, peace on earth? Question mark? Peace on earth? I can't even find peace in me, let alone on earth. And so I want to talk about it this morning. Let's talk about our own peace and how we sustain it so that we can offer it to others. Isaiah 28, 16 offers a prophecy of the Messiah, offers a prophecy of Jesus, and it uses an image that's picked up multiple times in the New Testament. It says this, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Jesus, the Messiah, is a cornerstone, a strong, tested, firmly placed cornerstone. And if we believe in the cornerstone, we will not be disturbed. Our peacefulness requires this cornerstone of Christ. The building that is our shalom, that is our wholeness, it needs a foundation stone, and that foundation stone is Christ. Now, I have never built a building 
I have never personally laid a cornerstone. But I have played Jenga. And I'm pretty sure that this is exactly the same thing. Now, if you've never played Jenga, this is Jenga. And the object of Jenga is that you are to slide out pieces of the tower without allowing the tower to fall. That's the game. So I would take a turn, slide a piece out, you take a turn, slide a piece out, and whoever made the tower fall loses. I want you to imagine that you were playing this game, and you, there's some obvious pieces that you would slide out first. And then there's some obvious pieces that you would wait and would not slide out unless you were in a desperate situation, and that would probably be these two pieces at the bottom, on the outside. These two. Because they sort of represent the corner blocks or corner stones of the tower. Now, it is possible to push one of those bad boys out and keep the tower up, but it does, it's wobbly. It's dangerous. It's, it's thin ice territory. So the tower might still stand if you pop out one of those cornerstones, but it's certainly not in a place where it can withstand very much at all. Now, I want you to imagine with me that this tower is your shalom, that this is your peace. This tower is your peace. Now, I think we all know from experience, and certainly from Scripture, that none of us should expect full and complete and utter shalom and utter peace here on earth because of the sinfulness, the fallen world, the brokenness around us, and the brokenness in us. So there's, we all know that there's a few missing, there's a few pieces missing from all of our towers. Just the few. Because we're not in heaven yet. But as we go through life, we find that the struggles of life, the pressures of life, anxiety, fears, concerns, start pushing out other little pieces of our shalom. Some more than others, and sometimes more than at other times in our lives. We find that pieces of our shalom have been pushed out. And the more pieces that get pushed out, the more shaky we become. If you've ever played Jenga, you know that this tower, it can be standing but be like this, like way to one side because of all the pieces that have been taken out, been taken out. And all of us have this, and for a while, the grace of God feels totally sufficient to have a few pieces taken out. We feel fine. We get it. We're not going to have complete peace. But then, more pieces start to get pushed out. And then more pieces. And we start feeling that sense of, I can't do too many more pieces, God. I can't take too many more of this, too many more pieces being pushed out. And then you start to teeter. And then, most distressingly, you begin to feel a little nudge on the cornerstone. You start feeling the cornerstone slide away a bit. Maybe you have some 
sickness that you've been praying and you've been struggling with and, and you've been, people have been struggling with you and you've visited doctors and you've worked through it and you've worked through it and just so many pieces of your tower have been knocked out by this until you finally say to yourself, maybe God's mad at me. And it's a little nudge on the cornerstone. Or maybe you've been longing for a breakthrough with some negative spirit in your life of depression or of anger or of lust or of unforgiveness. And you can't seem to shake it. You've tried to shake it. You want to shake it. But somehow the little blocks keep getting pushed out. And you've got, you have this moment, this sort of desperate moment where you say, am I even a Christian? Do Christians struggle like this? And it's a little nudge on your cornerstone. Or maybe you just look at your life and there's nothing tragic in it, but you just say, it's not quite what I thought it would be at this stage. I thought my life would be a little different. I don't quite feel the wholeness that the Bible seems to promise. You find yourself saying, I don't even know if there is a God. And it's a little nudge on your cornerstone. And any of you have experienced this, the nudge on your cornerstone creates a great sense of distress and panic because the tower is built on the cornerstone. And when you feel the cornerstone shaking, you start going, what am I to do? How do we assure that the cornerstone is not lost, is not pushed out? Let's begin with a little history of our spiritual peace. Before you were a Christian, you had one major enemy before you were a Christian. You had one major, one major enemy of concern. And that enemy of concern was God. God himself was your primary enemy prior to becoming a Christian. You were at odds with God. You had aligned yourself, in the phrase, phrases that Paul uses in Ephesians 2, you had made allegiances with the ways of the world, with the cravings of the flesh, and the prince of the air, which is the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. You had aligned yourself with them, and you had made yourself at war with God. God was the enemy, and these other things were your um, alliances. But here's the catch. God was and is a benevolent enemy. He is an enemy that is seeking peace with you. He is an enemy that reached out to you for peace. He provided the way of peace in Christ that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. He offered a way of peace with you. He has made the overtures of peace. We were the ones that were resisting peace. Have you ever tried to rescue a scared cat? Sort of the very, this is a very low-level image, but work with me on it. Um, Imagine you have a kitten. It gets spooked. It takes off under the bed. And it goes in that, like, so imagine the bed's in the corner. So it goes to the furthest corner, right? So you start trying to coax it out. Here, kitty, kitty, kitty. You make all these sounds you don't usually make, right? I mean, you're just trying to do something. You don't even know what a cat sounds like, but you figure this is going to help. It, of course, does not help. Kitten stays back there. So you finally decide, I'm going in, right? So you get down on the floor, 
you shimmy under, you get closer and closer to the kitten, the kitten's getting more, I mean, the kitten's not coming to you, right? The kitten's like going further, further back in the corner. So you decide, I guess I'm just going to have to like, whew, have to reach in and grab it. But as you do, kitten becomes less little scared kitten and then becomes all teeth and claws. So you reach out and you grab and you say, I'm just going to take it. The thing grabs at you. And of course, you know how cats are. They're like all like sprawled out as you try to pull this thing. And you want to say to the cat, I am trying to rescue you. I am trying to make peace with you. Stop clawing me. Salvation's a little bit like that. God reaches out to us, and for a while we claw. Our self-righteousness says, bite, 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 bite. We hide, we pull ourselves away. But once we can pull in the claws of our self-righteousness and accept the overtures of peace that God is making towards us, we can claim what Romans 5 says is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Absorb that verse for a second. When we respond to the overtures of peace from God, we receive, we experience peace with God because of our salvation. When you became a Christian, your status changed from enemy of God to a person of peace with God. Christ the cornerstone was slid into place in your life. A cornerstone that was tested and firm and will not fail. No matter how much shaking your shalom tower might have, no matter how shaky things become, even if the top of the tower falls, your cornerstone cannot be removed. Because the cornerstone is unmoving, unshakable, unbreakable. You have permanent status of peace with God through Christ once you've accepted Christ. Your status of peace with God is permanent. But I think we all know from experience that there's a difference, and I'm not trying to get semantic here, but I think it'll, it'll land on you okay, There's a difference between peace with God, this sort of definitional status we have because of Christ, and the experience of the peace of God, which tends to be roller coastery. Our peace, the peace of God in us, it goes up and down. Circumstances change, different pieces get knocked out. We're kind of up and down with the peace of God. But even when we're experiencing issues with the peace of God, we still have the cornerstone peace with God that cannot be removed. So it is okay if you are not experiencing the peace of God because that does not necessarily comment on the status of peace you have with God. They're not the same thing. But why would you feel this way? Why would there be this disconnect? Well, think about our image earlier. Remember that you were at war with God and you had aligned yourself with the flesh, the world, and the devil. But when you became a Christian, you aligned yourself with God. 
You changed allegiances, and now you have new enemies. The ways of the world, the desires of the flesh, and the devil. Those things that used to be your allegiances, obviously, now that you've jumped ship, have become your enemy. And so it's the world, and it's your own fleshly desires, and it's the devil that starts pushing out your little shalom pieces. And they push and they push and they push because these enemies, unlike God, are not benevolent. They are sinister, they are evil, and they want to destroy you and your spirit. Make no bones about it. Your enemy, if you're a Christian, your enemy now is not seeking reconciliation with you. It is seeking to destroy you. And so what is one of the most powerful lies that the enemy can offer? That is to give you the sensation that your cornerstone is being nudged. But it is a lie. It is a deception. Your cornerstone cannot be moved. It is firmly planted by God himself in your life. So you may experience the sensation of the nudge on the cornerstone, but it is part of the deception of the devil. It is a false feeling. It is a trick. That earlier Isaiah passage says, if you believe on the cornerstone, you will not be disturbed. Though the whole tower may fall, the cornerstone remains, and you rebuild. If you've become a Christian, your foundation has been laid. It does not need to be laid again. I think, though, we would all prefer not to get to the point where we feel the cornerstone being nudged. Like this is sort of, I started in sort of the more desperate times of our lives, right? The darkest, darkest times where we're questioning our faith, we're questioning God, we're wondering if we're, supposed to, if we're where we're supposed to be in life. It, the preference would be not to get that far, to sort of resist the work of the devil, of the world, and of our human flesh, and, and resist it before we get to that point. So let's talk a little bit about stopping the slide as pieces start to fall out of our tower, how do we stop the slide to sort of this fear and despondency that comes when we think that the cornerstone's being nudged? Of course, the first principle in helping us to stop the slide is to remember the cornerstone can't be nudged, as we just said. But let me suggest, secondly, that we need to appropriately adjust our expectations of the Christian experience. Let me say that again. We need to appropriately adjust our expectations of the Christian experience. In John chapter 16, Jesus is meeting with his disciples, and he's about to go and get killed. He's about to go and die. The disciples have no concept of this. They cannot conceive of this. So Jesus says to them, you're about to have a really, really bad few weeks, a few days. He says, it's going to get better, but until then, it's going to get bad. And then it's going to be trouble, there's going to be trouble later too. And so he gives them this encouragement in verse 33 of John 16. 
I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We need to accept Jesus' double level of expectation, double layer of expectation here of what the Christian life is like. You will have peace and you will have trouble. And you will get screwed up in your Christian life if you expect it to all be one or all the other. If you walk into life going, life's full of trouble, it's a disaster, it's all horrible, and I will never experience any goodness of God, then you've gone only in, you've only taken half of the expectation. Likewise, you can't walk into life, your Christian life, and say, well, it's all going to be peace, flowers and rose gardens. Jesus says, expect peace and expect trouble. Expect peace and expect trouble. And expectations are huge. Expectations dictate many times your understanding of reality. C.S. Lewis gave a great example. I'm going to tweak it just a little bit. But he says, imagine that you're in a hallway. You and I are in a hallway. There's a closed door. And I say, I'm going to open this door, and I'm going to show you the honeymoon suite. You say, okay. And I swing open the door, and it's a pretty basic room. Not even a nice room at that. It's got a bed, credenza, TV, little cable box on top, air conditioner, no, no balcony, small bathroom. And you look at it, and you go, it's like a Motel 6. Now imagine you're in the same scenario, same hallway, same exact door, but before I open it, I say to you, this is a jail cell. And then I open the door. And what's interesting is you could say the same line and it means something totally different. Imagine that con- in that situation, you go, huh, this is a Motel 6. Same person, same room, same door, same hallway. I just manipulated your expectations. And it changed your whole perception of the reality of that moment. And so when Jesus says to us, you need to expect peace and you need to accept trouble, expect trouble, it's important that we have those expectations calibrated. You will be thrown off if you don't expect trouble, but you'll be thrown off if you don't expect peace. Don't become so comfortable in your peace that you get surprised by trouble. But don't become so obsessed with your trouble that you fail to look for peace. Expect both. Finally, let's look at one other peace passage in closing. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. This is one that's, I think, familiar to many of you. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, sometimes the advice to rejoice in your trouble sounds a little trite. If you grew up in the church, you know that this verse was a favorite verse for little kids' songs. One from the 80s, 
Let's rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. <laughs> do you remember this one? Some of you do. And you could do it as, you could do it as a round. Rejoice, rejoice. Right, and you could, so the kids on this side would be like, rejoice in the Lord always. And this side would be like, rejoice. It was great. Loved it. But sometimes we act like when we grow out of a song, we grow out of the truth of the song. But I think when it comes to this particular passage, it's actually we need to grow deeper into this passage. Because Paul is doing something very profound here, I think. Notice that he's weaving together three fruits of the Spirit. Joy, gentleness, and peace. That's, that's not trite. He's going for something there. This is not Paul's hakuna matata moment, right? This is not Paul saying, eh, no worries. It's our problem-free philosophy hakuna matata. I don't think that's all, at all what Paul's saying. I think what he's saying is we can rejoice, we can be gentle, and we can have peace. And all of those words are oriented around a little sentence right in the middle. The Lord is near. You see, we think rejoicing sometimes is trite because instead of making the Lord the cornerstone of rejoicing, we make happiness the cornerstone of rejoicing. But happiness and rejoicing may or may not be connected. It's great when they are, right? It's great when you're able to be happy and rejoicing. But many of you know that there can be joy in the midst of sadness. Joy and sadness are not opposites. We dropped our daughter off to college on August 23rd. There was joy and there was sorrow. We even have a word for it. It is bitter sweet. We have a word for it, people. You can be rejoicing in your sorrow, in your sadness. In difficulty, there can be rejoicing. Because you're rejoicing in the truth that the Lord is near. It's like the cornerstone. You're rejoicing in a reality that cannot be changed. So as all these other circumstances change, we can say, I rejoice because the Lord is near. In the same way, we can face the pressures on our tower with gentleness. The word gentleness, by the way, it's a tricky word to translate. If you have ESV in front of you, they use the word reasonableness, which sounds very different than gentleness. But it doesn't mean gentleness like a soft puppy, thick toilet paper. It's not the kind of gentleness we're talking about. Paul and the word being used here, gentleness, reasonableness, it has this sense of steadiness, of calmness. Or to use the, maybe the most common lingo, you don't freak out. You're able to handle the pressures on your tower without freaking out. You can handle it with gentleness. Not a weak, this isn't weak. Gentleness is not weakness, it's actually a strength. And we, we admire that in people. You all have been in experiences where you've seen someone go through a difficult time and you admire the gentle strength that they're able to show. 
you can admire yourself in it sometimes. I've come home from school before, and Gina's asked me what's going on, and I've told her some stories about what happened, and I'd be like, I am so proud of myself that I did not freak out on that student. Go, Mr. Bino. Right? I mean, there's times where we see ourselves handle something with gentle strength, and we go, that's because the Lord is near. We rejoice because the Lord is near. We have gentle strength because the Lord is near. We see this in kids, by the way. If you ever take them, like, let's say, a fireworks show, they're watching the fireworks, and some strangely loud boom happens. You know, some of those ones that are, like, obnoxious booms, but there's no real lights involved. It's just a boom. And kids start crying and car alarms start going off. What happens is the kid will look up to mom or dad or uncle, whoever they're with, and they'll signal. The kid will look, and they'll decide... Do I need to freak out or not right now? And if the parent is showing gentle strength, then they go, oh, I guess everything's fine. And they get all happy again. And there's a sense where the Lord being near us offers us the same kind of opportunity. We hear the boom in our lives, and we can look and say, he doesn't seem to be too upset about it, so I'll be good too. Gentle strength, because the Lord is near. And we pray in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And we pray because the Lord is near. And then Paul positions peace as a guard. That's an image of peace we don't think of every day. Put a set of armor on peace. And say, it's going to guard, what is it guarding? Your heart and your mind. When we rejoice, when we show gentle strength, when we pray, peace becomes restored. In Jenga, in the game, once a block is pushed out, you don't push it back in. You can't restore a Jenga game. But in, for Shalom, you can Gentle strength, prayer, rejoicing. In the next verse, which isn't on the screen, but the next verse says, whatever is noble, whatever is beautiful, whatever is admirable, think on those things. If we think on the right things, if we show gentle strength, if we pray, if we rejoice, we find that the, the mystery of the surpassing peace of God starts restoring those missing pieces of our shalom. And pieces that were once lost become restored. And our tower is strengthened and rebuilt. Your circumstances may not have changed, but the peace of the Lord can be renewed in its mystery. And because this peace is our guard, our emotions can be at peace Our hearts can be at peace. The Lord is near. Your cornerstone is sure. You're not going to fall apart. Your mind need not race. Your heart need not be frantic. You are going to make it. Through whatever it is you're going through, you are going to make it. If the Lord is your cornerstone, you are going to make it.
Remember that opening prophecy from Isaiah. It says, the one who believes in the cornerstone will not be disturbed. That word disturbed is another really tricky word to translate. In literal Hebrew, it means will not run in haste, will not run frantically. In short, it's if you believe in the cornerstone, you will be at peace. The cornerstone is set. The Lord is near to you, so be at peace.